Welcome back to season five of That's What She Did podcast. We're dedicated to amplifying the voices of the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you don't already know. We highlight everyday women who are impacting today's social issues while also centering the voices of women of color. In short, we curate the stories of brilliant women. This season, we're bringing you Women Who Disrupt. Each episode, you're going to hear from an impactful and inspiring woman who push your thinking, challenge your assumptions, and most importantly, inspire you to find a way to create impact in your corner of the world. I'm Tangier Renee, creator and host of That's What She Did. Thank you for joining me and your fellow inspiration junkies as we learn from and connect with today's brilliant women. Hey there, inspiration junkies. It's me, your host, Tinji Renee. You are listening to season five, episode 16 of That's What She Did podcast. Here we are, the final episode of season six, The Women Who Disrupt Season. The season we've talked to thought leaders, activists, community builders, artists, and money makers. And we've learned something new from each of them. To wrap this season, we've put together a roundup of just a few of our favorite moments from all of these incredible dynamic women. But before we get there, I have a few listener shout outs. I realized recently that although I'd love to thank the listeners each week, I've not done a very good job of being specific. Some of you engage with the show over and over again by messaging me on social media or sending emails, and I've not done a good job of personally thanking you. I'm going to do better from here on out. So I'd like to start by thanking a couple of listeners at Indie Mompreneur and at China Tulliver. You two always show up. You're always in the messages always paying attention, and I thank you so much for your dedication and love of the show. I also want to shout out specifically both Canada and Mexico. Now, that might seem strange, but I don't regularly check the stats of this show. And I realized recently that That's What She Did podcast has been charting in the personal journals category in both Canada and Mexico. And recently, I realized that we've been charting in Canada and Mexico for a while, and I wasn't aware of it because I wasn't paying attention to the stats as closely as I probably should be. And that means that a whole lot of you have been downloading the show and listening. So thank you so much. I also have noticed, since I my newfound <laughs> dedication to checking out stats, is that we have new listeners across several countries. So I want to thank all of our new listeners in South Africa, the Czech Republic, Egypt, Tunisia, Cambodia, Iran, and New Zealand. I don't know how you found us, but I'm so thankful that you're here with us now. So thank you. Of course, I need to give a very big thank you to each guest that has been here on the show for giving us your time and your expertise and telling us your story. And of course, all of you, the listeners, this show is for you. You could listen to anyone and spend your time doing anything and you choose to give it to me and this show week after week and season after season. So from the bottom of my heart, Thank you for showing up each week. 
Thank you for learning alongside me and thank you for sharing with your friends. Now, even though this is the end of the season, make sure you are subscribed. I'm working on getting together a bonus episode or two featuring people that have been on the ground and on the front lines leading the charge for racial justice in America. I can't promise to get them on because scheduling is hard and they are busy. But we're going to do our best to make it happen. And the only way you're going to know about it is if you're subscribed. In the meantime, I'm gearing up for season six that she wrote that season where we are featuring women X authors across all genres whose work intersects with today's social issues. For those of you that have already sent me your suggestions, thank you so much. I'm I'm still taking suggestions until all spots are filled. So if you can think of an author that you want to learn more about, send me an email to that's what she did podcast at gmail.com. And friends, don't forget to pitch yourself, honey. If you're a woman identifying author whose work intersects with today's social issues, send me your pitch. We've already confirmed authors across several different genres like fiction, history, and even a children's book author. Season six is going to be so lit. You see what I did there? We're also going to be giving away books from each of our authors to our listeners. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed and don't forget to share. Thanks again for joining us for season five, and we'll be together again in the fall. Until then, smooches! Our first clip is from episode one with Terry Ijeoma. Terry mastered the stock market pretty early, and in turn, she created Trade and Travel, a course that is now teaching people all over the world how to master the language of money and make $1,000 a day in the stock market so they could build community wealth and retire early and live their best lives. I love this clip where she's talking about the racial wealth gap and why it's so important for people to learn the language of money and make your money work for you. There's this whole movement lately of being able to generate enough money to be able to retire early. However, a lot of us don't make enough money in the first place to save up a nest egg that would allow us to do it. Mm -hmm. And like we've seen so many reports from, like there was one report I saw recently where black women are the fastest growing population of building businesses. However, our income is like less than 40,000 on those businesses. Mm -hmm. So we're still not really making a lot of money on these businesses that we're starting. I saw another, of course, being here in South Africa, there's a lot of things on just disparities between races and how, although we now have freedom, we can't really utilize that freedom because we don't own it. We don't own the land. We don't own the businesses. We don't have enough money to actually take advantage of this freedom. So I completely agree that there is an income gap just all over the world, not even just in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I do agree, though, that investing is a way for us to level the playing field. Because when you're investing in the stock market, it really is between just you and the stock market. There's no middleman. There's no manager. There's no ceiling. So it is a way to have like a level playing field as long as you know what you're doing. So I I definitely think that this is a way to help us even in that gig economy. And then I, on the idea of 
houses versus businesses and income. Mm -hmm. I have some thoughts on that too, because I actually am a real estate broker, like a managing broker in Texas. And I've been a real estate broker almost as long as I've been a trader of stocks and options. And, And what I will say is one thing that people don't talk about enough when they're thinking about home ownership owning a home also comes with a lot of debt. So you have to usually put forward a big lump sum sum for your closing costs and your down payment. And then what people don't talk about is, although yes, you're building equity, your mortgage usually doesn't really start building equity until 10 years in. The first 10 years, you're paying the bank. Like all of your payments are going to interest. Like one of the big things I've been doing lately is trying to pay off my home. And what I realized is I've had my home for 12 years and I've only paid down about $2,000 on the actual mortgage. Can you believe that? Like I've paid the bank over $120,000, but only $2,000 has gone towards the mortgage because of the interest rate. So yeah, like... I actually encourage people like build your income. And then if you're thinking about buying a home, it needs to be your forever home. And I probably sound like a contradiction because I own investment properties, but guys, it's really not making as much money as if I would have worked that money in the stock market. Now I probably preach like learn how to make your money work, Mm -hmm. whether that's investing in a business, investing in stocks, investing in yourself, like try to make that money work before you just dump it into an investment property. Our second clip comes from episode three, where we featured Maribel Caseta-Smith, who is a TV and podcast producer, and pro golfer Cheyenne Woods. Yes, that Woods. Together, they created Birdies Not BS, a podcast that seeks to disrupt the golf industry, or as we called it, the Old White Guys Club. And it's bringing golf to more people of color and showing them how it can be a space where they can learn, where they can have access to more business, to more networks, so that they can expand their lives. And I love how they're talking about why this is so important, especially now. On the LPGA Tour in the last 70 years, there's only been eight women of color that have ever played. And so I think it's so important for me to have that platform and continue that image out there that it's possible and it is for you and that we can do this and be successful at it. And I think it's also about like leadership and building confidence within women and people of color. Because when you think about golf, I know that Tanjia, you said that earlier, you know, it's, it can be so elitist and it's true, but it can also open up so many opportunities and so many doors for you as a person. Like, for example, my husband and I talk about this all the time. He's like, I would never know some of the people that I know, or I would never be friends with some of the people that I'm friends with if it were not for golf. Golf has opened up opportunities for him and I've seen it firsthand. It's opened up opportunities for other people. And I do think that it opens up doors for all of us. I just, it just can be really intimidating. And that's the problem. That was the one thing that I was seeing a lot. There's a big barrier of entry. Yes, because it's costly, but also because simple intimidation, you feel like you don't know what you're doing, you don't fit in. So we wanted to create something that was going to disrupt this idea of like, I don't belong. No, you do belong and you do have a right to be there. And here's how you're going to do it. And we are here to support you and guide you and give you no BS (laughs) about what it is to be, you know, to enjoy the game of golf and to learn the game of golf and not try to sell you this idea of like, you have to buy the best clubs or you have to have the best country club membership. Like, no, you don't need to. 
Next is a clip from Denise Hamilton, the founder of Watch Her Work. She's building out a platform that is disrupting the mentorship and leadership space by democratizing it. She's on a mission to help working women go further faster. And here she's talking about the importance of mentorship and why mentorship is broken for so many women in the workplace and what she's doing about it. It is a digital platform with one central goal. We help working women go further, faster. That's the goal. Um, I have been in corporate America and in entrepreneurial pursuits for over 25 years. And um, because I was the only African-American or the only woman in all of these different situations, I became a lightning rod Mm -hmm. for mentees. Everybody wanted to pick my brain. Can I take you to lunch? Can we grab coffee? And it occurred to me as I was talking to my peers that um, also were successful CFOs, um, general counsels, that they were having the same pressure, right? They, it's like how we don't get to see our own kids. How do we get to be in charge of equality? Right? <laughs> right? And it was like this small group of women that had each 500 other women that were trying to get their time and, try, and they want to help. But how, how can you help in a substantive way when you have such an incredible demand? Mm-hmm. Um, and so literally, I felt like there had to be a way to leverage technology to solve this problem. So I turned on the camera and started filming. Mm-hmm. I started filming women, filming their answers to all of these questions, because I really believe that no one has the answers to all of these questions, but together we all do. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I have a fundamental belief that mentorship is broken and um, watch your work is my answer to that. Um, and both in an online and an offline way of supporting women in by giving them the information they need when they need it how they need it. We have about 7,000 videos right now with the goal of 20,000 by the end of 2020, including Watch Your Work in Espanol that's going to launch in May. And it's really simple. It's how do I tell my boss I'm pregnant? What do you do if a client hits on you? You slept with John in accounting and now he's telling everyone, (laughs) what do you do? I cried in a meeting. Who do I, like all of those questions that quite frankly, Maybe you don't have anybody to ask, mm-hmm. right? So you can't find one mentor. Watch your work gives you access to hundreds. That's what we're doing. Why would you say that mentorship is broken? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons that the current model doesn't break. So the first one I've already addressed, right? It's just supply and demand. There just are not enough women to match the hordes of women. And I'm excited that we have so many women behind us that are like getting into the workforce and climbing up in these organizations. But we still have an average of one, two, three women in these key leadership roles. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not sustainable. And then there's, um, you know, the wonderful corporate matching programs, right? Where they match you with this, you know, wonderful hotshot woman in your company. Are you really going to call her and say, I cried in the meeting yesterday? No, you're not. You're not (laughs) because it's, I'm going to be taxed, right? I'm going to be punished, but guess what? I still need that information. And if I don't get it, I, I may zig instead of zag. And that's where this kind of falls apart. If I don't have a comfortable place that I can access this information, I'm just not going to have it. And I'm flat. I'm not moving up. And I don't even know why, because I don't have that resource. So what do we do? We start asking our friends, our friends that work in retail, our friends that they don't know how to negotiate severance. They've never been in that environment. Or we ask our family who loves us, but 
They don't know anything about this environment. And I always say, don't ask amateurs for expert testimony. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're doing, creating this false environment of, quite frankly, the wrong advice, right? And so another thing about mentorship that's really interesting is everybody tells you to get one. Everybody wants one. But nobody actually seems to have one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really small group of women that actually have them, right? And who are those women? They're the pretty girls with the sparkly hair and the perfect teeth. Mm -hmm. They're going to get a mentor, right? We cannot afford to just develop five, eight, twelve percent of women. We need a way that every woman can be developed. <laughs> In our next clip from episode seven called Irregular Latina, we have Zahira Kelly Cabrera, who is an artist, a songstress, an activist. She's sometimes more commonly known as Bad Dominicana, and she is a all-around disruptor because it's just who she is, and she's talking about her journey into all of these things, into finding herself and using that, her art, to be an activist and to be an outspoken leader that is really talking about colorism, specifically in the Latino community and why that needs to happen now. But I love this clip so much because she's talking about being invisible in the larger world and how she had to grapple with that. And through her art, she was able to find a community that empowered her so that she could do what she came here to do. How I started to make a name for myself was uh, I belonged to like this forum that was like for black natural hair. And like in that forum, like that was so formative to me. Not only did I learn how to like bite back at all the trolls on the internet and just like, you know, the really annoying people. Um, like I've seen it all since then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also just found a community of black women from all over the world who like it made it so clear that we actually all go through the same issues despite being in different places geographically, you know, because mm -hmm. anti-Blackness is a global thing. Right. So it was like, we're talking about our hair issues and like, I'm Dominican. I wasn't really um, taught a lot about race. It was all about nationality instead. Cause you know, that's how it is when you're Latin American for the most part, mm -hmm. people kind of stick to the nationality part and like gloss over the race, even though, even though there's colorism mm -hmm. and anti-blackness and like whiteness is favored and all of these things. Um, so I was like unsure of myself and what to even identify as at the time I was like maybe 2021. 20, and those women on the forum were like, girl, shut up. You're black. <laughs> like, and that's exactly what I needed. Like through that, I mean, I also learned like black women are the best at not only checking you, but also affirming you and setting you the fuck straight, mm -hmm. you know? And like, I needed that. I needed to be checked and I needed to be affirmed, you know, mm -hmm. that it wasn't something that I was like imagining. It's like, no, I actually grew up a black girl. And even though the Latin American community or like Dominican community, for example, does not like to admit to blackness like that's still my experience mm -hmm. and that is why it's mirrored in this forum of all of these black women so while i was in community with all these black women on the internet you know um i decided i wanted a tattoo a pinup tattoo because i was really into i still am really into like retro americana type stuff mm -hmm. but like i kept googling and googling and googling and all i came up with was white women mm, and yeah. it's like i'm not about to like 
put a white woman on my body for the rest of my life. Like I already have the whole rest of the world pushing me in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not going to like glorify them on myself. And suddenly I remember like, wait, I can draw. I can do this myself. So I did do a pinup and suddenly I had tons of commissions from women on that forum. Like, can you do one of me? Can you do one of me? Because it just turned out like they didn't have any representation in that way. Mm-hmm. They couldn't find images of themselves either. And they wanted to see themselves in that way. You know, um, black women in general are kind of like just denied femininity and being delicate or soft or any of those things. And like pinups kind of like represent a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um these days, for a while, I was the only person that would come up, the only art that would come up when you booked up black pinups. Oh, um, really? Fast forward like 15 years later, and there's tons. But there was a time where like I was really the only one doing this. Um, and it was just because, like, why not? Why do I not deserve to exist? It, it didn't even have to be that deep. It was just simply that, like, you know, and, and I did get pushed back. It's like um, I'm considered a niche artist because I focus on black women. But if I had focused on drawing white women, I would be considered universally relatable somehow. That's interesting. You know? So black women are not universally relatable, but white women are somehow, you know, that's white supremacy in a nutshell. Um Eventually, I started like a blog on Tumblr for my art, and mm. I started seeing these communities on Tumblr that were just like a bunch of women and femme people and queer people just constantly like fighting back, resisting, mm-hmm. challenging every norm. And I was like, this feels like home. So I started a blog separate from that. I didn't even tell anybody my name. I didn't show my face for like the first three years. Um, and I actually grew an audience on there. I still have like 12,000 followers on Tumblr. Um, because like one of my first posts was basically like, you know, if I don't exist in the popular imagination or in books or in media, um, do I even exist? I, I was just kind of grappling with being a Black woman, a mm-hmm. Latin American woman a woman, you know, and a bunch of other things, you know, that that come into play. And just being invisible in my own Latin American community, being invisible in the American community, Mm -hmm. and just like, where is my place? Um, It kind of like started from there. I, I, I was like shouting into the abyss, I thought, and people started shouting back, like, I get this. This clip comes from episode nine with Reagan Bird, who is an anti-oppression consultant. And although this episode was recorded well before the current uprising for racial justice in the United States, it's so perfectly timely because she breaks down the four eyes of oppression and explains pretty quickly to us what that means. And I think you'll see right away why it is so timely and applies to the time that we're in right now. For me and for our audience, can you quickly break down what the four eyes of oppression is? Absolutely. Um, So um, all oppressive systems, so when you think of an oppressive system, think racism, sexism, heterosexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, ageism, all those isms are systems of oppression. 
all systems of oppression operate on four fundamental levels. And if they're not operating on these levels, then we need to question if it's really a system of oppression. So this actually invalidates conversations about, well, what about reverse racism? There is no reverse racism because it does not operate on these four levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the four levels are the ideological level. So this is like the ideas and ways of thinking we have about groups of people. Um, Uh, So all oppressive systems start with dehumanization. They start with this idea that this group of people is different, inferior, at the bottom of a hierarchy. Therefore, um, they don't deserve this. Therefore, they need to be separated in this way. Therefore, their interests don't matter, et cetera. So all oppressive systems start with an ideology that is oppressive to a group of people. Um, And then those ideologies get codified. They get made into rule and law and policy um, based on... um, beliefs in those ideological ideas. So if you take the idea that um, black people are um, inherently more violent or more criminal than other races of people, that became, um, that became, um, was used as a justification to then talk about why black people need to be enslaved or are are a slave race inherently. Um, Are we at institutions that basically um, yeah, said black people are a different class of people. Um, they are subhuman and we had institutional rules and policies in the United States that, that basically mandated that black people can't learn to read or write. Black people, um, will, um, you know, are limited from accessing public space in certain ways, like have curfews and things like that. Black people are literally property and can be owned by other people. When we get into Jim Crow, how those laws came up. So that's the institutional layer of oppression. Then the interpersonal layer is our interactions as individuals and um, as uh, groups. So our interactions based on, um, still based on these uh, ideologies, these stereotypes we have about people, and also reinforced by these institutions, people then pick that up and it changes and transforms our social interactions with each other. Um, So racial slurs, insults, uh, the types of assumptions and expectations people bring into their interactions with other other, uh, marginalized groups. Uh, All of that is the interpersonal layer. And that's the layer most people get stuck on. They think that's the only way oppression shows up. So all racism is, is a mean individual who's mean to other people based on their race. No, that's one layer racism is. It's not, but it's not the ideological or the institutional layer. Um, And then the last one is internalized. How do those other three layers affect you as a a person directly affected by these systems. So this is the psychological harm that comes from being a marginalized person. This is the double consciousness that we've heard talked about by Webb Dubois. This is the um, uh, stereotype threat. This is code switching. This is all of those things, those ways that we manage as individuals living in an oppressive system, what we internalize, uh, what we do with our behavior, and also the opposite analysis. So um, what do privileged people internalize about themselves uh, growing up as a privileged class in society? So how do white people feel about themselves? How do men feel about themselves growing up in a society where they are the dominant or privileged class? Uh, so that's the four is oppression. Next, we have a clip from episode 13 with Nicole Porter from the Sentencing Project. We had a really interesting conversation around criminal justice in America and why the United States has the biggest prison population in the world and how we got to this place. Um, It's just such an illuminating conversation. This, again, was recorded well before uh, the current movement for justice in the U.S. And it's just so timely. So check it out. So I read that the U.S. is the world leader in incarceration, like by a lot, like a lot, a lot. 
And when you look at just the statistic, it's hard not to ask, well, why is that? I mean, does that mean that the U.S. is just like inherently filled with more criminals, more, like um, more dangerous people than other, other countries? What does that mean? I think the non um, sort of curious person or the tough on crime sort of resident may assume that, but it's not, that's not true. Uh, crime increased in other parts of the world at the same time that crime increased in the United States in the late sixties and early seventies. So violent crime did increase in the United States. And in some ways, mass incarceration is a direct response to that. But violent crime also increased in Sweden, Germany and Finland and other Western countries um, during the same time period. And those countries responded to changes in violent crime with a uh, expansion of the safety net as opposed to, to a retraction of it. And rather than um, expand prison cells and, and increase the number of prison beds, they expanded access to early childhood education and work to divert people and reduce future contact with law enforcement as opposed to reinforce and expand opportunities that people would come in contact with law enforcement. There's a lot of underlying reasons why the U.S. response was a high incarceration one compared to other uh, Western countries, we have a, you know, our country is characterized by, by punitiveness here. And there's also a issue of race that underlies how these responses get generated and, you know, what led to the building up of a prison system rather than the building up of other social infrastructure that reduced contact with law enforcement. So no, the United States residents are not more violent or more criminal prone than they, than other residents of other parts of the world are. It's just our responses to crime in the seventies and eighties was one that focused on incarceration as opposed to prevention and reductions of contact with the criminal justice system. This clip comes from episode 14, which was actually a throwback episode that we originally posted in season four during our activists and storytellers season. But we decided to bring it back and re-release it this time around, again, because it's so perfectly timely. This episode was only recorded six months ago, and some people lost their minds. It is still the most talked about episode. It features Syra Rao and Miss Regina Jackson, the co-founders of Race to Dinner. And so I love this episode for many reasons. Number one, it is timely to the movement for justice that we're in right now. They're talking about really tough conversations that they're having around race and privilege in America. And For other reasons, I really love this entire episode because it's sort of everything that I envision for the show. It's intergenerational. It's women, these incredibly smart, intelligent women that are women of impact showing up and just being themselves and telling their stories and sharing their experiences and creating something that we can learn from that challenges our thinking, hopefully, that hopefully sharpens our thinking. So I love this episode for so many reasons. And I think that this clip, this little portion of that episode, just sort of brings you into the heart of it. 
Nothing makes white people angrier than when you talk about racism and their complicity in racism. They're fine when you talk about racism as a thing in the past or the Republicans are racist or the or racism is in the South. But the minute you make white liberals complicit in white supremacy, they will go crazy and then accuse you of being crazy. So how do we get here, though? Because now Race to Dinner is, is it a nonprofit? No. No. Okay. No. But we got here because we started doing these dinners and we really made a commitment. And, you know, one of the differences between Syra and I, I'm really old enough to be her mother. I was born in 1950. Well, everything in America was black and white. (laughs) You know, that's how it was. You know, didn't really grow up with a lot of white friends. Everybody just kind of stayed in their place. So I have no big expectations of white people. I know if I get anything in this life, it's going to be Uh, You know, maybe one or two people will help me, but it's really coming from community, my community. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's how I approached it. And Syra approached it very differently. But I think the combination of how we view the world is what makes it successful. And our final clip is from episode 15, where we talk to Corinne Rice. She is the founder and executive director of the Buffalo Project, which is attacking the business of sex trafficking and violence against women, specifically in the indigenous community. She has found an incredibly unique and I think strategic way to address the relationship between sex trafficking, violence, and toxic masculinity. It's interesting. It's holistic. It reaches into indigenous traditions and brings them all together. So check it out. I don't want to be another uh, direct service provider or victim assistance provider because there are so many awesome places that are already doing that important work. I don't even want them to have that work anymore. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if they were obsolete, if their work was obsolete? And I was like, human trafficking is a business. What if we attacked the demand for that business? Mm -hmm. What would that look like? And in my, in my understandings, it was, if we had a, if we had a, a nation of emotionally healthy men, who had a strong support system and a place where they could go to heal and work on their trauma, then they wouldn't be turning to physical violence or they wouldn't be turning to trafficked women um, to fill that, that void that they were experiencing Mm -hmm. um, or that hurt that they were experiencing. Um, We conducted an interview of 80 men and in the interview of these 80 men, 70% of them did not have another male in their life. They had a woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, they had women that they could turn to, but that's not our responsibility. They need to have, men need to have their own support Mm -hmm. because men are going to understand what men go through. Um, So there was a need. There was a need for, for, for somebody to step into that community of men mm-hmm. I, uh, I have male instructors that go into that space and work with the men because it needs to be men supporting men um, but there but because part of the indigenous teachings that we bring into this is balance um, I bring in 
the the feminine, my feminine and uh, uh, matriarchal views and culturally cultural matriarchal views into the development of the curriculum mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that. So we have culturally, we have these balance of like masculine traits and feminine traits culturally, uh, at least for my Lakota and Mohawk culture. And so that gets discussed, but I also have an instructor who's Kanaka. Mm-hmm. And so he bring he brings aspects of his culture to his t- classes and my Lakota instructor will bring aspects of his culture to his classes. So it's not a cookie cutter right. kind of thing. So when you were doing, going through the process of, of thinking about how were you specifically going to address trafficking and this large issue, this huge issue of the statistics of missing and murdered Indigenous women... Mm-hmm. And so I understand the rationale where, where it's like, this is a business. Yes, it's a business. So if we attack the demand for that business, then we eliminate the problem. Makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. But how did you make the jump from that? Like, let's look at the business model of sex trafficking and see what mm-hmm. we can impact there to, well, let's, let's really like, change toxic masculinity like let's really change the way men are relating to women the way men are thinking about women because when I think about a business model I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. make the jump in my mind to the to toxic masculinity right so how did you get there (laughs) yeah Uh, so I basically was I, I I'm examining the consumer mm-hmm Right. So I'm thinking where the demand for this product and product being trafficked people mm-hmm. um, is 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 a is a deep observation of who the consumer is of this product. And the consumer is most often, at least in the statistics that I have on who takes advantage of native women who are trafficked is white males um, especially in places like the man camp. So you have to, so you think about like what kind of person is going to be consuming that product mm-hmm. and what creates that, that consumer, what is the environment that creates that consumer of that product? And all of those traits were falling under that, that, that label of, of, of a version of masculinity that is toxic, right? Well, friends, season five is a wrap. Thanks again for joining me for another season of That's What She Did podcast, and I can't wait to be back with you in the fall. In the meantime, make sure you head over to our website, that's what she did podcast.com, to get the show notes and links where you can find all of our guests. And make sure you subscribe and share. Don't forget to get your pitches and recommendations in for season six. Can't wait to be with you again. Smooches! <laughs>